is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 40, our look at best practices in Lean Nash, plus from the vault, a 2021 conversation that touches on issues surrounding cirrhosis, which is the stage in disease at which Lean Nash is diagnosed far too often. I start this conversation by talking about last week's episode and particularly the similarity between Ian Rose's fibrosis first testing strategy and what this algorithm recommends. I then ask, how to identify patients requiring this kind of workup? For mazinuridine, the best signal is an extremely high ALT level. Otherwise, as Michelle Long notes, initial diagnosis is likely to occur at the time of a symptomatic presentation of decompensating cirrhosis, which is way too late in the game and what happens most often with Lee Nash patients today. Finally, the discussion shifts to focus on what hepatologists might take from this paper and its algorithm. Michelle points to its strong call for more research within the Lee Nash community, while Mazin points to the conciseness of an algorithm that incorporates primary care endocrinology and advanced hepatology treatment in a single diagram. He also notes that whenever he identifies patients, he tries to place them in clinical trials, both for their benefit and so the profession can learn more about this form of the disease. Mazin and Michelle's article provides clear, step by step guidance on how to identify, diagnose, and treat a rarer form of NASH that far too often is diagnosed in the ED, by which time the patient has progressed to cirrhosis and begun to decompensate. When followed, this algorithm can help lean NASH patients by identifying disease in its earlier stages when it has not yet had a dramatic impact on daily living, quality of life, or life expectancy. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion group. So the last two things that we've recorded, one for Surfing Nash and one for the Rising Tide Diabetes series, have been roughly in the neighborhood of this conversation, but not exactly. Uh, the last Surfing Nash episode, Louise and I spoke with Ian Rowe about a poster he presented at ILC. The poster was about early diagnosis and the most cost-effective way to do early diagnosis and capture patients, and it was it was decision curve modeling. What they suggested is, and this is for a total population, which means a lot of people people who are obese or overweight, is that you could pick up 85% of cases more cost-effectively if you used what they call the fibrosis-first method, where fundamentally, now their goal was to identify people with clinically significant fibrosis, but it was a more aggressive early testing regimen. It wasn't as comprehensive as ILFT, for example, but it was a lot less expensive. I'm wondering if there's a, now that's an approach that you could take before anybody got near a gastroenterologist or hepatologist. Lean now how do people come to you in the first place? Because I assume that kind of a holistic approach or ILFT, which is targeted at primary care, those kinds of approaches might not make sense here because you're dealing with, unless you're in Asia, you're dealing with a relatively small percentage population. Mazen Nuruddin. I mean, I can answer from my clinical practice. The lean NAFLD and NAS usually come, which is slightly consistent with the literature, for persistent elevated liver enzymes, especially in, on the higher side, meaning 30, 40 will get ignored, 50 will get ignored, but if it becomes 80s and 90s, and they're published data on that. This is when we get lean NAFLD. I don't think I got a referral on, or maybe not as many on lean NAFLD who had abnormal imaging without, with ALT of 35 or 40. That's what PCP they do. And that's why in this document, we went systemic and we recommended for evaluation for metabolic cofactors in lean NAFLD. And we recommended screening for lean NAFLD in lean people with type 2 diabetes and age 40 and higher. I hope that answered your question 
and Roger. Michelle Long. Yeah, I can add to it as well. I definitely agree with Maz and that's my, most of the patients with lean NAPL that I take care of also present in that way. Occasionally you'll have someone who had an ultrasound for some reason and they incidentally were noted to have hepatosteatosis and that was surprising given uh, their body habitus and comorbidities or alcohol intake. And so they'll come in through that way. And then the other way, unfortunately, is just people presenting with complications of cirrhosis. And that is also uh, probably most of my lean patients have decompensated cirrhosis and they presented with occult liver disease with variceal bleed or developing ascites or some other complication, unfortunately. So unfortunately, you now reminded me of what my other question was, but you did so in the process of answering it before I asked it. So thank you. That's great. My take on your collective answers are that a general screen pushed back to endocrinology or primary care would encompass T2, the type 2 diabetic patients, whether lean or not. And the other ones are just going to be a lot harder to find unless their liver enzymes are persistently really elevated. And then they'll wind up in hepatologist anyway, because no one will know what to do with that. So you probably don't need any special screening steps to capture lean NASH in a primary care endocrinology population beyond what you would have them do if you were simply going at patients at high risk. And it's when you get to the hepatologist. So the part that's in the blue basically is about how to get someone to a hepatologist and the hepatologist really has to pay attention. Am I reading you right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm intrigued by your comment about Ian's work. Uh, I'll need to look his poster up or listen to the podcast. But this idea of doing fibrosis first and having that level of risk stratification happening before the hepatologist makes a lot of sense. But I think in order to get there, we need to get people really comfortable thinking about fibrosis and really understanding these tests. And my experience has been that people get really nervous, the providers get really nervous about the liver and feel generally uncomfortable. You know, I, I think we can get there, but we have a lot of work to do to get get people comfortable assessing and evaluating for fibrosis without involving a hepatologist. Louise Campbell. To be more getting people acceptable and comfortable assessing for liver health rather than fibrosis. Let's actually check the health of the liver. We have transient elastography. We have a number of other reason, tests that act like a stethoscope. Some of them are accurate. Some of them are less accurate. But it's that comfort. Your body, by definition, defined the liver as the most important organ. It is the only one to regenerate. No other organ doesn't. So by genetics and that, I for me, I'm simple. If it ranks up that important that you have to keep it going, it has to regenerate, it has to be up there. So getting people more comfortable with that whole thing of rule it out, don't rule it in. So therefore, Ian's strategy would work in that sort of line. Going back to what Mars and then it was part of the question I was going to ask was, if you screen people or check them more frequently, you can discharge the ones who've made the life, the change, and no longer have NAPOC. Rather than keeping them in a pathway for two to three years while you continue to gather more patients. That's, again, how we can keep them in. I know in the UK, for example, our model is if you, you must see a consultant once a year to stay in the NHS system. If you DNA that appointment or miss that appointment, you fall out and it all starts again. So when we talk about following up with these tests three to five yearly, we are going to lose by just by pure attrition a lot of people. So again, keeping them in the pathway, assessing more frequently, yes, it is a cost, but for everybody you discharge, you cost saving. Certainly, I've read some of Mars's work on that. And yes, type 2 diabetes over the age of 40, no brainer to me, but I love liver health. <laughs> 
for me, it's about poor health. Most people have poor health. They don't necessarily have fibrosis or liver disease, more metabolic, endocrine, and cardiac. That, to me, seems that we would try and locate a lot of the lean NAFLD because they weren't small numbers that you talk about in this pathway and assessment. So we just don't get to see them until they present too late. Yes. And to add, Michelle, his definition of fibrosis first was simply liver enzyme tests, virus serologic screening, iron, and FIB4 would actually qualify as fibrosis first. So what you're advocating doing every year is now he gave the option of doing VCTE at the outset. And part of our discussion was about the benefits of doing VCTE at the outset as compared to FIB4. But you could certainly, I mean, Louise, if I've got this right, if you remember something I do, FIB4, what they're recommending would fit into his definition of fibrosis first. Yeah, it was a routine screen, more of the more common liver diseases to rule as the base screen. And if you then had a problem to move on to more uh, detailed screening, obviously in the light of a fibrotic score. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I love it. I think that's great. All the efforts that we're doing to help get our primary care, endocrine, cardiology, other subspecialists comfortable with FIB4 uh, will go a long way. So what else would a listener who was a hepatologist take out of this conversation and this paper that they might not be doing now? How, how will it change what they do? And then I'm going to work back to a gastro and then I'm going to work back to everybody else. Hopefully our hepatology colleagues are are already doing these things. But I do think it provides a nice framework to think about this issue. We point out specific areas that we need more information, in particular, the genetics of lean NAFLD. There are a lot of papers that are showing kind of opposing findings. It's pretty confusing literature. And we really, we were not there when we reviewed the data. We're not there in terms of recommending any kind of genetic risk stratification. You know, I think that's how people are practicing now, but it is definitely a call for more research in particular in that aspect. We need large cohorts of wealth phenotyped and genotyped patient populations that include lean patients with NAFLD in order to fully understand the genetic underpinnings of this subphenotype. I think also to add, I want the hepatologist to read table two in particular. I think a lot of times we might forget other causes of fatty liver or non-alcoholic fatty liver, especially in, in lean people. And and in table two, we give a list of not just the list of the conditions that you might think of, but also how to suspect them. Wilson's probably a lot of people don't forget it, especially in lean patients, but it's there. But for instance, urea cycle disorders. So it tells you when to suspect it and how to do the workup. Other lipid abnormalities, hypovitelipoproteinemia. Uh, for instance, you look for low triglyceride, stuff like that. So I think that table can be very helpful for the hepatologist. Uh, to go back and look at it when they have their non-alcoholic fatty liver uh, disease patient. And I think some people, I mean, although people started doing the fast, some people are still not doing like MRI scores. And I think they're becoming more handy in clinical trials and others. CT1 is another example. So it just explains where are we with the most updated science in hepatology and GI clinic. So in, in my mind, this document includes both primary care and GI and hepatologists. So the GI and hepatologists can go to primary care people and say, look at this blue part. This is what you probably want to do. But also it gives some directions for the hepatologist what is available nowadays to narrow down their list of patients that needs to be treated. One important consideration in NASH patients that we put here, and this is, we got questions about this. We use the traditional treatments such as vitamin E and pioclitazone. And of note, we probably can benefit from more studies in lean NAF 
NAFOLD or lean NASH on these conditions. But also, whenever I get a lean NAFOLD or NASH patients, yeah, the 3-5% weight loss can be really important. But I find like referring these patients to clinical trials is really helpful. It's good to include them in NASH studies. They will, will study the natural history, will test the medications on them. So clinical trials and it's a very important consideration in these patients. And to get these patients into clinical trials, you have to know how to tease out at risk NASH via FAST or these other new tools. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Surfing the Nash Tsunami on Wednesday, August 17th. Yorn will be back from vacation and Stephen Harrison will be with us. Until then, stay safe and surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.